Hey everyone, my name is Andrew Philbeck. I'm in charge of the groups here at Mount Pleasant, and I'm excited that I get the opportunity to be here with you today as we continue with our summer mixtape series. Uh, today we're going to spend our time looking at a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 10 about a Jewish man who's walking from Jerusalem down to Jericho, how he is attacked by robbers and left for dead until he is helped by an unlikely person. But before we do that, I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's Jesus' great message to the people where he challenges so much of what they believe, uh, what they know about prayer and living a righteous life and uh, all sorts of different things. Uh, I want to encourage you to make some time this week to read Matthew chapter 5 through 7 because it's just as challenging for you and me today as it was for Jesus' original audience back then. Toward the beginning of this sermon, just after the Beatitudes, we read these words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus looks at the audience and he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now for the sake of our time here together, I'm going to keep this as simple as possible. And the main thing that I want you to understand before we move on is that Jesus is talking about the role of Christians in this world. And that role can be reduced down to one word, influence. Influence. Jesus talks here about the influence of his followers on the world for God and for good. And what Jesus said to his original audience all those years ago, he is still saying to you and me today because of the power of God's word. That means that I can sit here and tell you today, wherever you're watching this, that you are the salt of the earth. You have an influence on this world that we live in. In fact, what we would say here at Mount Pleasant is that you are here to make an impact on this world. In fact, it might be better for us to think of it like this. You will make an impact in this world. The real question is, what kind of impact are you going to make? When Jesus describes his followers as salt in Matthew 5, verse 13, people debate about you know, what it is exactly that he means. And there are many who believe that Jesus is talking about salt's role as a preservative, you know, just as salt prevents meat from spoiling, so too should Christians live lives that keep the world from spoiling around them, at least faster than it already is. In my garage, we have a small freezer, not even as wide as this table, and uh, it was actually given to us by some of our neighbors a few years ago, and you know, it really came in handy over the COVID-19 lockdowns because we would store fruit and uh, pizza and meat and waffles and just popsicles, all sorts of stuff in there. I can remember one day uh, after things had kind of lightened up a little bit, I was actually coming back from work and I got out of my car and the garage, it just smelled bad. But you know, our trash is out there and it was kind of full. It was a couple of days before we had to take it out. So I thought it's just the trash. It'll be fine. A couple days later, take the trash out, all right, hopefully that's the end of it. It's not the end of it. Come outside the next day, okay, the trash is empty. It's actually outside, so I can make sure that the smell's not coming from the container. And I'm walking around my garage, just kind of sniffing the air, trying to figure out what it is. 
uh, that's causing this problem. And uh, I'm lifting up boxes, lifting up bags, just all sorts of stuff. And finally, what I find is that when I lift up one of the bags, I see, I realize what has happened. Because what I see is, you know, basically it looks like a bunch of little pasta noodles have all come alive, just piled together on my garage floor. And I realize, I realize how disgusting that sounds. I'm sorry, I tried to think of a way to kind of make it funny, but it's just so gross. Um, that that's the most accurate way for me to describe it. And what had happened was someone, I still don't know who, was getting something out of the freezer. They pulled out a bag that was full of frozen ground beef and put it on the floor, got what they needed, and then left it there. Even though it was completely frozen, it didn't take long for it to thaw. And once it was thawed, it didn't take long for it to spoil. And once it was spoiled, it didn't take long for all those little pieces of pasta to appear. We are called to be an influence for good in the lives of every human that we encounter, to prevent spoilage, to to slow it down, to help in so many different ways. This is true whether people are our own family members, whether they are our coworkers, whether they are strangers that we meet on the road. I believe what we have here is a call to love our neighbors the way that God wants us to. Go ahead and turn from Matthew over to Luke's gospel in your Bibles. You can turn to chapter 10. I'm going to read the entire story of the Good Samaritan. It's Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. I'm going to try to touch on every aspect of this story. Uh, But at the same time, I do want to say that because our text is a narrative, because it's, you know, just a story that Jesus tells, I'm going to let it kind of guide us in our time together from start to finish. Uh, But it's still a very rich text. It's a challenging and a convicting text. At least I know that it is in my own life. I hope it is for you as well. And because of that, I know that it's going to be worthwhile for us to spend some time uh, looking at it today. So uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? We answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, we see a number of things in this text that we can look at, but 
underneath all of them, I want what I want to do in our time together is focus on the profound power of influence that we as believers have when we live out the call to love our neighbors as ourselves. And while the question of, you know, who is my neighbor is what starts Jesus telling this story, it's not the question that begins this whole exchange. And that's an important thing to know because the question that kicks things off is when the man approaches Jesus and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Our text tells us that an expert in the law is the one who asked this question, a scribe, a lawyer. I've seen him written about in those ways. And as we see, it's a fair question with a questionable motive. He wants to test Jesus by asking this. But Jesus, he doesn't take the bait. In fact, what we see is that he turns the tables on this man by asking his own question in response. What is written in the law? How do you read it? You see, Jesus, rather than being trapped in some way by him, actually sets a trap for him. But the scribe, the expert in the law, he doesn't realize that. And we should note that you know, the trap that Jesus sets for him is a trap based on love because it's a trap where he wants the man to realize his need for God. Well, the expert in the law, he answers Jesus by quoting something called the Shema. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This was the uh, Jewish profession of faith and it was recited twice every day. It came from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. Now, one of the things that's interesting, uh, just quickly worth noting, is the fact that the man gives basically the correct answer. I say that because in Mark chapter 12, we see Jesus asked a similar question and he gives the exact same answer that this man does. So we know that on the one hand, it's right. And yet we also know that it wasn't enough for this man. He was not satisfied, even though Jesus tells him that he's correct, even though Jesus, you know, more or less gives him a gold star and pats him on the back for all that he has done. We see the reality of what is going on in this man's heart because he wants to know more. He wants to know just who in fact it is that he's called to love. Just who in fact is his neighbor. You see, what he wants to hear is Jesus provide him with some kind of justification for the way that he has been living and for the way that he wants to live. He wants a loophole that allows him to limit those around him that he's called to love and serve. Well, this more than anything reveals the character of the man. Because when Jesus tells him, do this and you will live, honestly, what he should have said was, well, that's impossible. It can't be done. And I say that not to make excuses, but because, I mean, when we look at the kind of the kind of complete love that we are called to have for God, it's all-consuming nature. And then when we couple that with the utter selflessness that we're called to live when it comes to loving our neighbors as ourselves, what we see is something that is beyond our own capacity, beyond our own ability to accomplish. But because the man wanted justification more than anything, because he wanted to prove that he could do what needed to be done, he asks this follow-up question, who is my neighbor? And we can criticize him for this question, but honestly, my guess is that he was just saying what everyone else was thinking. 
And while you and I, we may not ask this question so directly in our own lives today, I think it's something that many people still struggle with, still wrestle with. You know, just who exactly counts as my neighbor? Just who am I called to help? Who am I called to love? How far am I expected to reach out when it comes to the way I love those around me? And what we see in this story is a wonderfully challenging picture of the kind of life that we're called to live in this world. Because in it we see the truth that every single person has value. And we should attempt to do what is best for every single person that we come into contact with, regardless of who they are. But it's also fair to ask, how do we do that? How do we live out this call, this this challenge in our lives? And what Jesus tells us is that if we are to love our neighbors... We have to see them, we have to serve them, and we have to sacrifice for them. And there are many things that go along with those statements and other things that we could talk about in this text, but in an effort to keep this as uncomplicated as possible, these are the points that we're going to be looking at. Number one, we need to see our neighbors. This sounds so painfully simple, but the truth is, Many people live life with blinders on. We choose what we see. We choose what we're exposed to. We choose who we interact with and who we don't interact with. And the truth is we need to make sure that we see all of the people around us. And we need to make sure that we don't let this command to love our neighbors as ourselves just turn into this kind of like really good idea or this wonderful sentiment uh, that we all know and we all appreciate, but we don't ever actually do anything with. In the book, The Art of Neighboring, the authors Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon, they write this in regard to this command to love our neighbors as ourselves. They say, If we don't take Jesus' command literally, then we turn the great commandment into nothing more than a metaphor. And we have a metaphoric love for our metaphoric neighbors, and our communities are changed, but only metaphorically, of course. In other words, nothing changes. In our text, we see a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, when these men saw the dying man, they didn't see him as a person in need. They didn't see him as a brother. What they saw on the road was a thing to be avoided. And while there are lots of speculation about why neither of these men stopped and what that means and what we should, you know, kind of interpret from that. We have to be careful when it comes to trying to read meaning into the text. Our goal when we read the Bible is to to take things out of it, to take the truth that's there out of it, not put into it what we want. And so to keep things uh, moving along, what we need to understand in this story is that these two men would have been rays of hope to Jesus's audience because they would have been people others expected to stop and help. That's who they were. But Jesus has them move on to the other side of the road and do nothing. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. I don't know if it's possible for me to communicate to you today What an outrageous statement that is for a Jewish audience to hear at this time in history. 
You know, maybe I'm naive in saying that, but the truth is that the disgust that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews, it was it was so vile and full of so much vitriol that it's hard for me to think of a comparison for our day and age, at least one that we would be comfortable uh, admitting that we relate to in some way. But again, in an effort to keep things simple, what we need to understand most of all is that so far in this story, we have two people who have been expected to help. Two people that you might even say because of their religious background, their religious training would have been conditioned to help. And yet they pass by this man, ignoring him as best they can, certainly not allowing him to get in their way at all. And then comes a man who, because of Jesus's audience, was not expected to help. In fact, they might have thought that things for this man beaten on the side of the road had just gone from bad to worse because probably the Samaritan is just going to finish what was already started. And yet Jesus tells us that when he saw the man, he actually saw a person in need, a fellow human being who would die if nothing was done. And the Samaritan, his heart went out to this man. He felt compassion for him. He was overcome with grief and sadness for what this person had experienced. And so he acted. You know, it's natural to want to help people who are like us. It's natural for you to want to help people who are like you. I mean, this is what the religious expert, the lawyer who asked Jesus this question certainly believed. That his call to love his neighbors uh, probably extended to the people who were physically around him, but more than likely it extended just to those who were socially and religiously like him. It's natural to want to help people who are like us because we can usually relate to them in one way or another. And we also typically don't mind helping someone who is experiencing something, uh, some kind of trial, some kind of difficulty, and it's not their own fault that it's happening to them. But how do we treat people who, at least in our mind, deserve to be in the situation that they're in? I mean, this is a question that we have to ask ourselves. And we have to be honest with our answers because, listen, while I am not going to pretend to be wise beyond my years or anything like that, I have seen enough to know that many times people tend to find themselves in messes of their own making. Now, listen, that is not what happens all the time. You and I know that that is not true all the time. That is not some kind of broad judgmental statement on what people are experiencing. But having said that, there are times when it does happen And when it does, do you still see your neighbor as someone in need of help? Someone that you can help the way that you would want to be helped? Or do you see them as someone who has to lie in the bed that they've made for themselves? Jewish people at this time in history, they had a very strong belief that if some kind of hardship or calamity or health problem affected a person, it was God's punishment for some kind of sin in their life. I mean, that's basically the whole story of Job and him dealing with his friends. Uh, We see the disciples ask Jesus a similar question about this in John chapter 9 when they come across a man who is helpless. It would not be completely out of character for them to see a man beaten on the side of the road and think, you know, well, if he had just lived the life that God wanted him to live, then God would have protected him. 
But in our story, in the story that Jesus tells, I guess I should say, we witness a stranger see with simple clarity a man in need. And in that need was an opportunity for him to help. You know, as is the case with these challenges, these, these points, we have to think about the implication to love our neighbors as ourselves. And as far as this goes here with this first point, what it means is that we have to strive to see others the way that we want to be seen. And we need to understand that that goes so far, so much further beyond just the uh, image that we try to create for ourselves. You know, so many people want to be seen as successful or funny or talented or healthy or, you know, whatever. It goes down to the core of who we are as created beings in the image of God to see others as special and unique and worthy of attention, valuable for who they are. That's the way that we want to be seen, as people of value. This is how we should strive to see others. Number two, we need to serve our neighbors. We need to serve our neighbors. I know Pastor Chris Franklin preached last weekend about service, so I'm not going to dwell on this section, but we can't read the story of the Good Samaritan and not talk about the importance of serving when it comes to loving our neighbors as ourselves. In Luke 10, verse 34, he goes on to say that he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. Now, What we see in this story, I think, is an extreme example, though it is not an impossible one. We should never fool ourselves into thinking that thieves only strike in other places or that people are only victimized and brutalized somewhere else, but not where we live. And because of that, we should be ready and willing when the opportunity to help arises. But having said that, We must also realize that if this is the example of service Jesus gives, this kind of like large umbrella example, then we should also do other smaller things, smaller acts of service, ones that are more readily available to us and ones that might go completely unnoticed by others. Those small acts of service. They're like single grains of salt. And though one at a time, they might not amount to much. Over the course of a lifetime, however, their preservative quality, their influence, their impact, it can be seen and felt in every life that we touch when we love our neighbors as ourselves. I came across a quote um, from the end of a book called Middle March, not that long ago. Uh, I'll be completely, I've never read the book. I've never, I don't even know what it's about. Uh, But because I read so many just different types of things, this happens from time to time. And I, I read this quote and it just, it just stuck with me. I couldn't get it out of my head when I was thinking about this sermon and, and reading about Matthew 5, 13 and thinking about Jesus telling us to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is what it says. It says, the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. We may never save someone from death who is beaten and laying on the side of the road, but we have the power to perform, as this quote says, unhistoric acts 
numerous ones, small acts of love and kindness and service to our literal neighbors and to all the people that we come into contact with. And while all of those individual acts might not be celebrated on their own by others, they will serve as salt to slow the decay of our world and our society. And by loving our neighbors as ourselves, what they do is that what that does is it shows the world around us what the love of Christ lived out daily truly looks like. If you look back at Matthew chapter five, after Jesus says that he uh, that we excuse me are the salt of the earth, he says this in verse sixteen. He says that they he's talking about the world, other people. He says that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. When we see others and when we serve others, no matter who they are, even people of different cultures and and different faiths, they will glorify God because of the good things that we are doing. But here's the truth. They cannot glorify what they do not see. And the people of the world will not see the truth about who our God is if we don't live out this command to love our neighbors as ourselves. The Roman emperor Julian, I think he was the last pagan emperor of Rome before all the others had converted to Christianity. He uh, took many steps to return Rome to its pagan origins because by this point in history, by the time that he became the ruler, Um, Christianity had spread to the fringes of the empire and it had uh, rooted itself deeply into all the aspects of Roman culture. Because of that, he wanted to rein it in. He wanted to take things back to the way they were. And he would write about the progress of Christianity and his frustration because of how it, it pulled people from the old ways. And he wrote that the Christian faith had been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. And this is just a piece of what he said. He says, The Galileans, that's the Christians, the Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. You see, one of the things that happened in Rome is that Basically, everyone just sort of looked after themselves. And what I mean when I say that is, you know, the Romans took care of the Romans, the Jews took care of the Jews, you know, whatever tribe you were from, whatever family you were from, whatever culture you were from, you all just kind of looked after yourselves as best you could. But then the Christians came along. And the short version of the story is that they took care of everyone. Everyone people from different families, people from different countries, people from different religions. They loved their neighbors as themselves. And listen, while we don't read in the history books about all of those individual acts, all of those individual grains of salt, what we do see is an undeniable impact on the entirety of the Roman Empire to the point where the emperor himself, who was not a believer, recognized what an amazing thing it was that these Christian people were doing. You and I are called to live the exact same kind of life. Number three, we need to sacrifice for our neighbors. We need to sacrifice for our neighbors. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him 
he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. When the Samaritan offered these two silver coins, he was offering to pay for the man's room and board for at least three weeks, possibly longer, given what we know about the cost of staying at an inn during that time in history. And what Jesus describes in this story is an amazing act of generosity. He was showing this Samaritan taking care of the stranger in a way that most people would only strive to take care of themselves. And he doesn't shy away from the fact that it cost him something to do this. And what we see in this story helps us better understand what it means to show mercy to someone. But not only that, it shows us the ministry of Jesus. It's easy for us to read this parable and to be challenged when it comes to how we should love our neighbors. And the truth is that we should be, absolutely. I hope that you have been. You know, I can, I can tell you that we, both of us, both you and I, whoever is listening to this, we should strive to live like the Samaritan man in this story. And that ought to be our goal when it comes to how we treat other people. And while that should absolutely be the thing that we strive for, we also have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest with ourselves about the times in our lives that we have been like the priest and the Levite, the times that we have chosen not to show compassion. And there is so much value in being honest with ourselves and recognizing those times because if we don't think that that ever happens to us, then we're never going to strive to live differently because we don't think that we need to. And we end up just like the religious man who asked Jesus the question at the very beginning of our story. But here's the deal. Jesus also wants us to identify with the man who is lying, beaten, and dying on the side of the road. Because make no mistake, that is where all of us either are or were. You know, not physically, perhaps, but certainly spiritually. And what happened was that Jesus saw us, he served us, and he sacrificed for us. He didn't pass us by. He knew there was no way that we could get better on our own, no way that we could save ourselves, no way anyone aside from him could rescue us. And what we see here is a gospel parable that challenges us challenges us to love our neighbors like Jesus and at the same time serves as a reminder of what Jesus' love looks like for you and me. One of the things that I said earlier is that it's natural for you to want to help people who are like you. And you know, we have to be aware of this because what we see in our story and really throughout all of scripture is that our call to love, it extends so much further beyond that. It extends so much further beyond just the people who are like us. You know, whatever that means for you, wherever you are. And the main thing that helps us do this, the main thing that helps us live this way is to remember that we have all been like this helpless man lying beaten on the side of the road. And we were like that until someone, not like us, stopped and helped. And that's the truth. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth. And in that role, we can slow the decay of our world by 
preserving it through living and loving like Jesus. But I believe there is another element to this because another thing that salt does when we add it to food is it brings out its full flavor. You might even say that it brings out its full potential. In the book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes about the power of influence and he uses salt as an illustration. I'm not gonna read the whole thing to you today because it's a little bit long, uh, but I'm gonna give you kind of the basics. Because he says, imagine that you were to meet someone who knows nothing about salt and you give him a taste. Well, what does he experience? So he experiences something that is sharp and strong and, and overpowering in flavor. And then you tell this man, you know, where you come from, basically, you use salt in all of your cooking. Basically, you put it in everything. Well, what would he think? Well, he would think that all of your food must taste exactly the same because salt is so intense, it's so strong. But we know right away that when we use salt correctly, it has the exact opposite effect because rather than killing the flavor of the food, it brings it out. Lewis says this about food in his illustration. He says the food, it does not show its real taste till you have added the salt. Many people in our world, probably most people in our world, they look at Christianity and they see something that is unattractive, something that smothers all of the fun, all of the flavor that life has to offer. But the truth is, when you are, when we are the salt of the earth, the way that Jesus calls us to be, when we truly live out the command to love our neighbors as ourselves, there is preservation. There's new life, new meaning, new joy, and experiences that simply cannot be tasted aside from the influence of Christ in our lives. Warren Wiersbe writes this about Luke chapter 10. He says, To the thieves this traveling Jew was a victim to exploit, so they attacked him. To the priest and Levite he was a nuisance to avoid, so they ignored him. But to the Samaritan he was a neighbor to love and help, so he took care of him. And what Jesus said to the lawyer, he says to us, Go and keep on doing likewise. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that when you saw us in our need, in our hurt, in our helplessness, you stopped. You came to where we were. You served us and you sacrificed for us. I pray that we would always be mindful of that so that we would never think that we are different or better than anyone else in need. And while we cannot do the things that you can, we are able to follow your example when it comes to seeing those around us as they truly are, serving them and sacrificing for them. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the ability to notice, to look for these opportunities. We love you, Father God, and we thank you so much for all that you've done for us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.